0: okay well it seems strange to not have worship and praise and prayer and all that ahead of time but uh jesus said if just two or three gather in his name he's he's there so this is the jesus own presence uh let's pray together father god i do thank you that you are the living god Father, we're not gathering around a few amazingly powerful but old philosophies or ideas or historical events, that we are gathering around a living God. And Jesus, again, you did promise that if just two or three gather in your name, you will be in their midst, and that has nothing to do with our physical proximity. Jesus, I wanna thank you personally, and I knew each one of us do, that you take our gathering as a serious treasure you take our gathering as as delight and honor to you and then you delight and honor us back by being present with us and even the very things we're studying tonight the outpouring of your spirit and and the beginning of the church we ask father son and spirit we ask that you would be working in us uh, that even if we know these details and the stories and, and the events, even if we know them backwards and forwards, and I've studied them 500 times, what we ask is that your spirit would help our spirit to listen to you, so that I would hear new things you're speaking into my life. So that each one of us who are listening, and, and those who listen later, that each one of us will hear your spirit speaking new things into our lives, out of the things that we are familiar with. And Father, I do thank you that you have poured out your spirit on us. We are equipped and gifted because you said so. And Jesus, you promised it, and then you fulfilled your promise. So these few minutes that we have together to look into your word, we ask that your purposes would be accomplished. Not my purposes, no one else's purposes. We ask that your purposes would be accomplished and the truths that you want to bring forward and impress in our hearts, that your spirit would speak them individually teach one of us in ways that stick with us because we're listening to you. Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Jesus, our, our sacrifice and savior. And thank you, Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And we agree on these things in the name and authority of Jesus. Amen. Okay. Well, we are continuing in in, uh, Acts chapter 2. And uh, normally there would have been somebody who would have already read this, but I'm going to read starting at verse 14. Um, and I'm going to pause along the way as we try to digest a few and harvest a few truths along this passage. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken up through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my bond slaves both men and women i will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy and the prophecy continues but i'm going to pause there so we can digest Um, and part of what we're hearing here this is the introduction This is the introduction of the good news of the gospel. This is the first sermon preached uh, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has been poured out on believers. And and we're going to come back and look at Peter probably several times uh, through this thing. But but again, the recognition, it says now Peter took his stand. He takes his stand with the eleven, but... The beauty of this this truth for you, this truth for me, is what transformed Peter, and this is going to sound harsh, but it was factually true. What transformed Peter from a lying coward into a brave and powerful witness of the truth was the outpouring of Jesus' forgiveness on him after the resurrection, and now the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that brought him gifting. And that, that dual outpouring. Forgiveness, grace, restoration. And now power and authority of the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. And that cowardly, lying, hiding, braggart who couldn't keep his word. Harsh words, but Peter would say them stronger probably than we would has now become a joyful faithful fearless proclaimer of the truth and so he takes his stand to proclaim the truth and and the first thing he addresses is sort of the question of whoops what's happening here so people were recognizing something strange is happening because We're from all over the place, and they even name a host of countries and areas of the world. We are from all over the place, because one thing that that Acts has already mentioned, and it's a crucial idea, is that because this was one of the commanded feasts, Pentecost, one of the seven feasts that God commanded in Leviticus 23, it says that devout men from all over the planet had come, from all over the civilized world, devout men, women, and children, faithful to God through, through the old covenant. They were devout. It didn't just say legalists were present. This is the word that the Holy Spirit chose to use. Devout men, women, and children are in this crowd. They came here because they actually chose to honor God. They traveled far, probably for many of them. It was an incredibly financially sacrificial journey. For some, it meant the loss of of business. For some, it meant the loss of other opportunities. But they said, you know what? God commanded us to celebrate this. And if at all possible, I'm going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And those are the devout men, women, and children that are here to hear Peter's sermon. And so Peter stands up and begins telling them, here's what's happening. This isn't a bunch of drunk people. You're hearing the word spoken. You're hearing God honored and praises spoken in your own language. And again, remember, that's what they're hearing. They're hearing God's great works honored in their own language by the men of Galilee. And and as they're hearing that, they know something odd is going on. But Peter says, here's what's happening and is so often true. His proclamation is, what you're seeing is prophecy fulfilled. And he goes to Joel 2. Um, And we we won't go to Joel 2 because actually Acts quotes it pretty well for us. Uh, but if we were going to go to Joel tool right now, one of the things we would see is that Joel is looking forward to the end of days. He's looking all the way forward through human history. And one thing that's interesting in the new Testament is that several of the new Testament writers consider the whole Christian era, starting with the beginning of the church. They consider the whole thing, the end of days we are in the final days and and so now in these last days god has spoken through his son and he's revealed the final plan there are no other plans coming jesus is the final majestic fulfillment of everything that the old testament pointed to and we've talked about this several times before but one of the things that's that's really neat about scripture really amazing about god and about scripture and it, and it does this in a way that literally no other book, no other religious writing, no other prophet, no other person claiming to start a religion has ever been able to do. And that's that God spoke hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy that had to be fulfilled in detail. And to give credibility to those prophets, he would have them first predict things in the immediate things that were contemporary to them so that Israel would know they were a true prophet. With with the caveat that if they got it wrong, they were to be stoned to death. That's a high bar. That's a high bar. I would hate, and I'm glad that, that God does not do that then, that God says, you know what, if you ever hear Reg make a mistake in a sermon, drag him out back and stone him to death. Uh I will make mistakes. I am not speaking prophetic truth that you can write down as scripture, but I am a teacher and we're going to try to gather truth from the Word of God. But these prophets, Joel himself included, had to pass that test of perfect 100% accurately to be known as a prophet. 100% accuracy to, to even be alive to speak the next prophecy. And now he's looking to the end of days and he says, here's one of the marks of the end of days. The Holy Spirit will be poured out. And I like this. He says uh, on all mankind. And we just heard that in this gathering in Jerusalem, there are men, women, and children from all over the civilized world at that point. And not just Jews. We're even told that many of those devout men, women, and children were converts. Gentile converts who had already come to believe in the god of the old covenant who had already said you know what if that's the living god and this is what he's doing i'm joining in and now here's the holy spirit saying i brought you all to jerusalem because of your devotion to god i brought you here to hear and receive the next thing i'm doing and i think one of the one of the things that i hope we get out of that very seriously, very real for me, very real for you, is that God says, I want your devotion. I want your devotion. I don't just want you sitting in your easy chair with a with a comfortable intellectual agreement that I've spoken the truth. I want your devotion. That's the men, women, and children that God had gathered in, in Jerusalem is men, women, and children of devotion. And then God says, because if you walk in devotion to me, guess what? You're going to be standing in the right place. I will have brought you in the right place. You will have been journeyed to the right place to just be present when I'm ready to do the next thing in your life. And I think part of the tragedy, seriously, is recognizing how many more men, women, and children that the heart of God would have desired. To be there in jerusalem for this sermon who did not have that devotion thousands god would have desired thousands more to be in jerusalem and then again that the challenge for us the wisdom for us and the learning for for us out of this is father i just want to make sure i'm in place to, so that i'm ready to do the next thing you lead me i want to walk in genuine devotion to you i want to be learning to love you Not just to believe you intellectually. I want to be surrendered to your lordship. I want to be ready to obey you when you speak. Jesus said a really amazing, terrifying thing. uh, When he was talking about discipleship. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things I say? And we're going to see that again through this passage. That part of our wisdom, part of our devotion... Part of our real understanding of the Word of God and the, and the calling of a believer's life is Father, help me to be ready in my devotion to obey. That when you lead me to the pleasant thing, I go. But Father, when you lead me to the hard thing, I go. When you ask me to do the, the awesome, joyful thing, I say yes. But Father, when you call on me to do the humble, The heartbreaking, the the thing of loss, that even through tears of sorrow, that you and I would still be wise enough to say, I will. That's the devotion he's looking for. And God had brought men and women and children of devotion to Jerusalem because he said, I want you to hear what I'm doing next. I want you there when my spirit is poured out. And so now Peter is connecting what they have just witnessed to prophecy that is hundreds of years old to once again make it real clear God is not operating in the dark. We're not always having to wonder is this it is this it that God himself will have put the marker God put over 330 prophecies in place in the Old Testament to mark Jesus quite literally, as the one and only man in human history who could have fulfilled the prophecies of Messiah. That nobody before him and nobody after him can be qualified to fulfill all 330. And we've looked at some of that in other sermons. We can't do it right now. But now that same God of prophecy is saying, I want you to know that I told you this was going to happen. I was going to pour out my spirit and you're witnessing it, and what an amazing thing for these men and women and children from all around the civilized world to be present to know we're here when God is fulfilling one of the main markers that he has launched the final days of mankind he is pouring out his spirit on all of us but then Peter goes on to say this he says and I will grant wonders in the sky above And signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. So again, we're recognizing that in these few verses, Joel has prophetically summarized over 2,000 years of human history, the launching of the outpouring of God's Spirit, and then the final outpouring And the preparation for the final outpouring of God's wrath. Uh, Go to Matthew 24 for a second, or for a few seconds. In Matthew 24, and I'm sure most of you uh, listening are familiar with this, Matthew 24 is is one of the most profound teachings Jesus did on, on his return, on the Antichrist, on the final days. And after he's laid out all the sorrows that will lead and false prophets and and famine and war and pestilence and uh, everything that will be there for sorrow and heartbreak, in verse 21 he says this, after the revealing of the Antichrist, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So again, Jesus' words are making very clear. He's talking about one very specific great tribulation that could never be taught. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So Jesus has already talked about the Antichrist coming. And now he's saying after the Antichrist, tribulation like never occurred before and will never occur since that would have literally wiped out humanity if God had not put a limit to it and drop down to verse 29 of Matthew 24. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the, son of the the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So, Peter is now referring to Joel's prophecy, And Joel's prophecy is tied to Jesus' prophecy, which is pointing to the return of Christ. And in that recognition, he's saying, the Antichrist will be revealed after the Antichrist is revealed. There will be great tribulation that has never occurred before. And then at some point during that great tribulation, God himself will limit what's occurring. And he will step in and the sun will be darkened. The moon will appear blood red the, the earth and the heavens will be shaken. Stars will appear to fall from the sky. This will be an awesome day. And just so we anchor it one more time, turn to revelation chapter six. And we have in the, in the first few chapters of revelation six, We have Jesus opening the seals and and launching each part of what's going to unfold. And starting in verse 12, we have the the sixth seal being opened. I looked, and when he, Jesus, broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand and so Joel and Matthew and Acts and Revelation 6 are all in agreement that the the beginning of the church age launched by this outpouring of the spirit will one day be wrapped up in great tribulation after the antichrist is revealed but then god will step in and and the whole universe will announce the beginning of god's wrath and in each one of those passages talks about the great and awesome some some passages and translation say the great and terrible day this is not a fun day this is a horrible day because it is the day of god's unfiltered outpouring of wrath on the kingdom of antichrist on on those who are left on the earth who are unrepented. because remember matthew 24 said at that sun and moon and and stars his angels gathered together from the four corners of the earth all his elect and all the people who are left are now getting ready to face the wrath of god So Peter is is tying together the beginning, he's tying together prophecy, he's tying together what happened that day, and he's even looking forward to the Rapha. And again, these were men and women and children who were devoted to God and devoted to the word of God. And those, those Old Testament passages and prophecies would have resonated in their head. And they would have realized, oh my gosh, We are here while God is doing his final big thing related to Messiah. Because in Joel and and the other Old Testament prophets, that great and terrible day of the Lord is followed by the millennial reign of Messiah. And Peter is getting ready to tell them something really important. So here in Joel 2, in Matthew 24... In Revelation 6, he's been describing what's happening. Oops. I keep thinking I can scroll that page up, and I cannot. Um, But now he's getting ready to talk about all this is that's happening. What's it really about? Because here in, in Acts he gets to the point after verse 20 giving that final transformation of sun blood moon and stars falling verse 21 says this and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved what this is really about I keep putting this is about salvation. That gave you time to really ponder the word salvation. Um, And he goes on in verse 22 and he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So again, it's worth remembering. This is just 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus. Many of these, many of these same men, women, and children were in Jerusalem because they were in Jerusalem for Passover. And even if all of them weren't there, many of them had relatives who came and they probably, some of them probably had to switch off and you go for this and I'll go for that piece. But he's making it real clear. This was not some secret thing done in a dark corner. This city has reeled. This city has been shaken by the events of of recent times of Jesus performing miracles. When Jesus raised Lazarus to life, the whole place was shaken up. People were talking about that. An entire community witnessed that miracle. And some of them rejoiced and believed in, in Messiah Jesus. And others were appalled by it and went running to tattle to the Pharisees so that they could try to oppose him and stop him and so on. But Peter is making it real clear this Jesus wasn't some secret person you've never heard of. You have heard of the witness of his miracles. Many of you may have even seen his miracles. But he goes on to say this. Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So part of what what Peter is recognizing is that some of these devout, devout men, women, and children were cheering for Jesus to be crucified. And now they're here to hear about Jesus resurrected and his spirit poured out and offered to them anyway. And here's what he says, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible. Please listen to that word. Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why was it impossible for Jesus to be held in the power of death? And again, Peter is giving us a real clear lesson on the authority the unbreakable authority of prophecy because he's saying what he's get, what we're getting ready to read if god prophesied that messiah could not stay dead but had to be brought back to life then it was impossible for jesus as messiah to stay dead for david says of him i saw the lord always in my presence for he is at my right hand so that i will not be shaken Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter goes on to state the obvious. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, And his tomb is still with us to this day. It was an honored tomb, but it was the tomb of a dead man. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Now in in 1 Corinthians 15, which we we looked at recently, so we won't go look at it again. Paul lays out the sequence of of God declaring himself of Jesus appearing as as the resurrected Lord to a variety of people. And in verse 15, six, he says, and he appeared to 500 disciples. 500 witnesses at once saw the resurrected Jesus. And Paul even says, 25 years or so after this sermon is being preached, Paul says, and most of them are still alive. So what Peter is saying is very powerfully true at this point. That there are over 500 people alive at this point, who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And this 120 men, women, and children worshiping God in the upper room where they've now received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Those 120 got to see Jesus personally after his resurrection. And again, we we get to recognize this. Christianity was not launched because one human being just sort of had to believe another human being. Christianity was launched by eyewitnesses, and then more eyewitnesses, and then even more eyewitnesses, many of whom, probably in some ways most of whom out of that early group, were willing to go to their death because of the truth of Jesus' resurrection, because they could not take back the witness of what they knew to be so. And so this launching of Christianity is done by, by, in a sense, hands-on, eyes-on experience of the resurrected Jesus. But also many of the men, women, and children who are here have already seen and heard many of the miracles. They've already been exposed to the, to the incredibly strange stories about Jesus. And now they're listening to 120 eyewitnesses to the resurrection say, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is about this Jesus offering you salvation, and that recognition again that, that we get to recognize that baton has been passed on to us. Um, I know it. I know it makes many of you sad. We've some of us have talked about it. It makes me sad when the media focuses on Christianity uh, in an artificial way, and sadly, where every now and then. Somebody makes the news to speak for Christianity and they make it sound like the the job of Christianity is to tell other people how bad they are and how good we are. That's not the good news. (laughs) The good news is we're all bad. But we are equipped and offered and called to something radically different than who we are and what we deserve. We are all bad. Every single one of us deserves condemnation in hell. Literally every single one of us. So our good news to the world is not Christians are better than you. Too bad you're not one of us. Our good news to the world is we are just like you. We also sinned and needed a Savior. And we're going to tell you that Savior came. And he bled and he died and he poured out his life as a sacrifice for my sin. And that's why I'm forgiven. Not because I'm a little better than you. I am not forgiven because I joined the right group. I am not forgiven because I'm a little bit better than somebody else. I'm forgiven because I said yes when that sacrifice was offered to me. And the good news is now God is saying, whosoever will. We get to go offer that same thing to whosoever will. Anyone who is willing to say yes to God's offer can be welcomed in and receive that same forgiveness and be sealed in this same Holy Spirit. And he continues in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 32 again. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And many of you are familiar with this passage, but if you will turn to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment where we get to read the majestic description of of what Peter is describing. And starting in verse 18, Paul prays this for the believers at Ephesus, but obviously God's desiring that for us as well. Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, And what is the surpassing greatness greatness of his power toward us who believe? And and he's getting ready to, to inform us what kind of power he's talking about. What is the power of God's glory and riches and grace to you for your life, your real life? Not your imaginary life. If you could just be married to the right person or have the right parents, or wish you would have the right parents, or, or have the right income, or have the right job, or have the right ministry opportunities, your real life is offered this power. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So while while Paul is describing what the Holy Spirit is wanting him to describe, which is, I want you to comprehend the power of God for your life. It is the same power that raised Jesus. Didn't just raise him back to earthly life like Lazarus or like the widow's son or like the the synagogue worker's daughter. This was a majestic resurrection back to life and then back to power and authority at the right hand of the Father. Above every power and authority in the universe in this age and in the age to come and every time we read this passage and we go to this passage pretty often because it's a majestic passage every time we go to this passage there's a part of me that recognizes i still i truly honestly still do not fully comprehend what's being described but i am supposed to keep digging for more you and i are supposed to keep digging for more of what this means for our walk and our intimacy of relationship with god for our transformation into the character of Jesus Christ, for our friendships, for our marriage, for our relationships with with imperfect, screwed up believers in the body of Christ, with our own wives and husbands and sons and daughters and parents and neighbors and children and coworkers and bosses and employees that are full of frustration and aggravation, just like us. And we are equipped with power to go into all those relationships and those circumstances and those settings and keep growing into the likeness of Christ. And I like the way he says this, he's describing this majestic power of Jesus raised up. And then he says, and guess what? Look at Jesus in that majestic position right there at the right hand of God, above every power and authority in the universe. And then recognize this, The Father is giving that Jesus to the church as a gift. That position of Jesus power is now a gift to the church. So when we're stuck in our homes, doing doing uncomfortable Zoom meetings and doing things by phone and FaceTime and frustrated that we can't do it the way we wanna do it, we better remember this. We have all the power of the resurrected Christ to still do supernatural things in our fellowship. You can pray for me and I can pray for you and the enemy can't stop it. You get to encourage me and I get to encourage you and the enemy cannot stop it because Jesus Christ is seated above the end. And you know this drop down to verse four of chapter two of Ephesians. Uh, I didn't give this passage to, to Stephen, so I don't know if he will be able to get it up here on the screen. But Ephesians 2, starting at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And again, the eternal promise, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him so that we could walk in them. So the, the the powerful things that this Holy Spirit has now gifted us for, God prepared those things. And those won't be our works. Just like we talked about, you know, a, a more accurate title for the book of, of Acts is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and disciples, because that continues in your life. And I and I hope you and I are saying, "Father, I agree with that." I agree that because of the Holy Spirit that came into me and sealed me as your own, the Holy Spirit that I'm free to keep growing in and allowing to fill every area of my life by choice, by surrender. I agree that that Holy Spirit now equips me to do the powerful things that you prepared before the foundations of the world for me to do. And some of those things might be impressive. They might be, but most of the things God has us do that are majestic and powerful and mind boggling are about relationships. They're about forgiveness. They're about peace. They're about love. They're about joy. They're about kindness and goodness. They're about forgiveness. They're about our transformation into the likeness of Christ. So if God just wanted to get big, scary stuff done, he doesn't need me to do it. But if he wants somebody to live with my wife on a day-to-day basis with grace and kindness and tenderness and love and affection, without first measuring to see if she deserves it, and if if the Holy Spirit wants her to live that way with me, then we both get to recognize that's going to require the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's not natural for us to live that way. The natural is selfish. And and I'm sure every single one of you listening to this, whether it's just a handful or or many, every single one of us knows, yes, apart from the work of God, I am a truly self-centered human being. Apart from the purposes and the teaching and the work of the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in me, I am a naturally selfish human being. So the most majestic things God can now get done in my life won't be about things that make the 10 o'clock news. They will be things that bring hope and joy and tenderness and love into someone's life. They will be things that bring hope into someone's really dark corner of the universe because we showed up in their dark corner of the universe with grace, not condemnation. We showed up with truth. We showed up with the love of God. I'm going to go back to Acts chapter 2, because he says this, verse 36, uh, where we'll end today. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And remember, when when Peter was starting a few verses earlier to say, here's here's what all this stuff that's happening, here's what it's really about. It is about salvation being offered to you. And back in verse 20, 21, he was quoting from Joel again, Joel chapter 2. And he said, And it should be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And now Peter has just declared the Lord of salvation is Jesus the Messiah. And just as as Hebrews 6 tells us, there is no hope. If anyone says, you know what? I liked everything God was doing. I was in agreement with everything God was doing right up until he got to Jesus. But I don't want to do the Jesus thing. I want forgiveness and hope and grace and salvation some other way. And the revelation of God now spoken through the new covenant is Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. He is the only mediator between God and man. And so Peter announces to this crowd of thousands of men and women and children from all over the civilized world, including many who are already devoted to the God of the old covenant. He says, here's the new covenant. Jesus is the Lord of salvation. But he he also clarifies he's Messiah. He's the Christ. And now for all these devoted men and women and children who've studied the word of God, part of what Peter is putting in front of them is the challenge. Now it is on your shoulders that you, having studied the word of the old covenant, having studied all the prophets of the old covenant, that you gather together all the Old Testament truths about Messiah, and you believe all of them about jesus one messiah one messiah who came to die and one messiah who will one day return to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up there uh i told the pastor to keep it the half an hour but he didn't listen to me again so let's pray together father i do thank you for your majestic word your majestic word Father, through the years, thousands and thousands of men and women have died. Many others have suffered to make sure we have this word. In real life, Father, have suffered and many have died to make sure we had this word. And they are heroes in your kingdom. And Father, we thank you and we thank them for making sure we have this so that we could read what you have proclaimed. We could read the witness of men and women who saw and touched and tasted the miraculous things of God. And again, we're willing to die for the sake of that testimony. We choose Jesus, your Lord and Messiah, for us. And we agree on this, Father, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.